when the Egyptian pyramids were built, it took between 20,000 and 100,000 workers per monument. The exact number changes whether you believe modern archaeologists or ancient Greek writers like Herodotus. If we assume it's on the high end, 100,000, that's still minuscule compared to the empire of labor modern companies command. The top employer in the world right now is Walmart with 2.3 million humans in their labor stockade. If Walmart adds another 500K in the upcoming decade, they'll beat Puerto Rico for population. Do you know how many pyramids 2.3 million people could slap together? Like if they all started hauling stone blocks? Taking into account the overall strength of a Walmart worker and the training to cut and haul the blocks, that's a pyramid in every state in less than 20 years. That's how much human resource Walmart controls. But there's one key difference between Walmart and the pyramids. Some of the pyramid laborers, especially those in the third and fourth dynasties, they had unions. According to Richard Redding, archaeologist at the Kelsey Museum at University of Michigan, those builders weren't slaves. They were well-fed. They had access to quality health care. They were guaranteed beer each day and enough protein and food to keep them moving. About six pounds of meat per week, to be exact. Or the equivalent of two McDonald's quarter pounders a day with the cheese. Whereas Walmart has successfully kept its people disorganized, despite petitions for union members going up by 57% last year, according to Newsweek. Instead of being guaranteed six pounds of meat and access to medicine, Walmart is both the biggest employer in the world and the company with the most employees receiving SNAP or food stamps off the backs of taxpayers, according to Fox Business. Doesn't Walmart offer health benefits? Well, they do, for some. One third of all employees are part-timers, meaning they either don't qualify or they don't get medical coverage until after 90 days of working the blue apron. Three months is a long time to wait without insulin or blood pressure medication. Why is this significant? Because Walmart owes its success to treating people like a resource. Not in the way great leaders treat their people like a resource providing a place of safety and comfort to do your best work. Walmart treats the largest workforce in history like a literal natural resource. Like they struck oil in the bedrock of humanity, and it's their job to stack people into their aisles, discount codes and all. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment, all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then, we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Lomets, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-duh on the internet. Our subject today is about treating people as a resource. How poor people are trained to see money as a resource instead of each other. How great leaders treat their talent as valuable resources to be protected. And how bad bosses and mega companies do it so, so wrong. 
treating people like handle-wearing company name tags. And we have three myths to start the conversation about the good, the bad, and the ugly of people as a resource. Myth one. The lesson every poor person learns from TV is how shitty they are with money. News and movies tell them the solution is hard work and smart savings. Nobody mentions the incredible value of picking a skilled life team and making great connections. Myth two. The wealthy know that people are a real resource. So why do they keep undercutting, humiliating, and stealing from the workforce? Is it just panic whenever the Dow Jones has a bad day? Myth three. Does anyone actually choose to treat people as a valuable resource? Or are leaders only forced to compete for talent so they can stay competitive? We're going to get to our myths. But first, I want to show Joe a training video Walmart used to show its employees, an anti-union video, which hasn't aged very well. And where does Walmart stand on all of this? Our philosophy is simple. We are pro-associate. Here, all associates are free to talk openly with their leaders. I'm completely comfortable sharing my ideas and concerns with my leaders, and I know that they really listen to what I have to say. By using the open door process, I'm encouraged to speak for myself. I speak on my own behalf. And frankly, I don't think Walmart associates should have to have someone to speak for them. It's just not that kind of place. I just feel that Walmart should pay us more than enough to, to support our families, more like um, 25000 a year. Are you able to get by on the money you make from Walmart? Not at all. She is part of the protest group Our Walmart, an association of disgruntled employees. Along with others, they've tried to pressure Walmart, enlisting members of Congress, city councils, anyone they can, arguing that the super retailer is essentially exploiting the hunger for jobs. Walmart, however, has pushed back hard. Our management team, our assistant managers, start around $55,000 a year, and our store managers average about $170,000 a year. So it's a good opportunity. Okay, so I don't know if you know this, Todd, but you are the inspiration for this episode. <laughs> you tell me I treat people like indentured servants or slaves. Is that where they're going with this? Yep. Uh, I notice you just carry around a pair of manacles whenever you meet somebody new. No, it's it's something I, I sort of started watching for. I, I come from a um, lower middle class background, and... I notice that my most successful friends, uh, whatever background they come from, have learned to see people as a resource a a in a good way, in the best way, really. Um, so I guess first off, my question to you is, how much of a resource are you to your friends? Like when, when, you, when people call you up and they say, Todd, I really need help with something or, or you know, um, do you go out of your way to show them that you have like abilities they may need or knowledge? I do, and th if they're calling you direct, it's because they're they're. If, if what what probably I'd say my specialty is, and, and I'm gonna tag Joe in on this because he works with me on this. We we do presentations for people who are corporate senior director directors on up in some major corporations, and believe it or not, they call Joe and I because they want their they want their performance, their presentation, their PowerPoint, their their if they're gonna face a board meeting or whatever. They want us to clean it up, make it more entertaining, make it easier to follow, 
So we work as structure. I, I hate to use the word coaching because it's overused, but I, I feel like we, when we get a project, we, we're all hands on tech. Right. In our, our whole team. And we also, by that, we, we don't just use our own brains and our own experiences, but we're, we're willing to research and we're willing to reach out and ask for other people to help us out if they have industry-specific experience. And as far as my own personal business and, and businesses I've been in, uh, you can build a whole company and a whole living based on, you know, I'm talking about the construction business, right, based on someone with a very unique, a niche skill set. And I don't mean 50 people. I mean just one person you can really, <laughs> you can feed your family off the experience of somebody else if you pay them right and treat them right. And they like you. Let's face it. They got to want to be on your team. That's a that's a conversation Todd and I were having off mic. We were talking about everybody sort of knows that one person in a small business who made the business work, who was a talent and a resource, and valuing them, valuing them like the resource they are, makes it click. It, it's Now, I know the larger you scale a business, the um, more easy it is to sort of lose somebody like that. Uh, but we'll kind of get into the specifics of like losing people, <laughs> missing the forest for the trees, or, or really just losing a resource in a pile of, of dross or, or, you know, chum. Um, now, when it comes to spouses and partners, like we when we talk about people as a resource... That's also relationships, too. That actually might be the more helpful takeaway from this podcast is when we get into um, you know, spouses, um, partners, dates. How much do you want to sort of in life marry a good person who will be a resource for you? And how much does that not really actually matter? I'm glad you asked that, Joe. I, I, this is how I feel about it. When you win the lottery, let's say you win a huge jackpot lottery. You win $10 million, right? They give you an option. They say you can take the money over your whole lifetime, which is $100,000 a year, whatever it is, or you can take a lump sum now. It's, it's going to be chopped up a lot between taxes, and they're not going to pay you as much, right? Right. I think a good partner is the same thing as winning the lottery, and they just pays you over your whole lifetime. Every successful man and woman has uh, usually a spouse or a significant other a partner, a spouse, someone that they thank in every speech they give. And the reason that that is, is they wouldn't be there without them. And I, I think it's almost impossible with a toxic, negative partner who doesn't believe in you to do anything good. What do you think, Joe? I kind of think of it like, I mean, your your spouse isn't necessarily going to help you run a business or help you you know, do things at work, but having a bad spouse or having a bad partner that doesn't contribute, that's kind of like, you know, uh, setting sail and then saying, oh, by the way, here's my partner. They're an arsonist and they just have a gas can. Like, <laughs> like it, so many people pretend like their partner isn't going to affect their professionalism or their business or their future success. When in reality, that's going to be a huge part of it. it it's They're going to be a resource for you nonstop. We... I think too. I think when you start complimenting each other too, and and building each other up, you get the best out of it. I think certain people bring out the best in us, and just like certain people bring out the worst in us. And there is the obvious ones with the addiction and stuff, but it's just people that admire you and see. The, I really wanted to land on this episode, Joe, and you did a fabulous job writing this episode. Um, it's extremely interesting from the beginning narrative to all your to all your research. 
I, I want the, the lesson in this for myself and for anyone listening who wants to get better at, at, at networking and being a connector and using people and using themselves as a resource to just pay attention. When you meet somebody, if you're a small business owner, if you see that kid at Starbucks or you, you meet that somebody at, at, at Target and there's somebody special and they have goals and they have a good attitude, you can build a business. You want them on your team. They might not have the experience or something, but they got the right attitude, and they, they they've got places, and you can afford them while they're cheap, you know. Right. To to make this a bit more personal, so people don't think we're like um, waxing poetic about hypothetical humans who make good resources. There's a couple examples I kind of want to get into. One is what you're talking about. You meet somebody, even if they're out of place, and you you meet them and talk to them and realize, holy heck, you are the most intelligent person I've met today and you seem like you can do almost anything. Like like you meet somebody and right away you're like, yeah. you're so confident and good at this stuff. I just want your numbers so that I can find out what you're doing later. Like you don't necessarily want to, yeah. you don't have a job for them to do. You don't have anything that you need them to help you with. You're, you're not moving a couch with them. You're just like uh, a kid at Starbucks who seems like you're way too smart to be here. I want to be able to tap you later as a resource, so let's be acquaintances. Like let's let's network. I'll give you an example. There's a, a Toastmaster friend of mine, and she's involved in. She's a younger woman. She's probably in her mid twenties. I don't know exactly how old she is. Um, her name's Amy Wang, and she's uh, she went to University of Chicago. She's got a great resume, and she's a you know worked for Nike. She already has an impressive resume for anybody. But I told her one time, I said, "Man, if you were a company, Amy, I would buy stock in you." Because she's just a born leader. And not only is she a born, born leader is not the good word for it. She's working at it every day. Yeah. She's getting, she's involving, she's raising her hand, she's volunteering, she's smart and bright. And she's not perfect yet, but she's going to be. I mean, she's already a 50-year-old in a 25-year-old's brain. You know, I'm thinking, man, so I, I just like that kind of thing. I, I'd buy, and you too, Joe, I'd buy some stock in you too. The stock's going to be penny stock, but I'd buy some <laughs> stock in you too. <laughs> I that is such a perfect way to say it. If if you want to sort of like encapsulate our entire episode today in one phrase, it's here is how to buy stock in other people you believe in, even if they are not necessarily doing something that will help your business or vice versa. That you can, you're not necessarily working for them; they're not necessarily working for you. But you would buy stock in them as a person. Um, now there's there's family in this too because. Oftentimes, people who are born with successful, helpful families, I mean, like, even if you just have, like, a uncle who works on cars and he's very good at it and he'll do it for cheap, or, like, you, you have a, a nephew who's a dentist and they can at least connect you to a good orthodontist. Like, if you have family members who can be a resource, that is huge, but at the same time, you have family members who will treat you as a resource in a bad way. We did um, a whole podcast episode about uh, millennials and housing. And we talked about, um, you know, David Lord Willett's book, The Pinch, and how you know, poor families that don't see um, their kids as a resource in a positive way, they they make them pay rent. Now, having your kid pay rent to teach them a lesson or to get some responsibility or to make sure they're not loafing on your couch for 10 years while playing Xbox, that's fine. I mean that, like, as a country, um, the boomer generation has made the generation below them pay rent to the point, according to the pinch, where it's become an economic problem. Like, it has slanted the wealth upward so that yeah. anybody under 35 has $17,000 in, I think, median savings, and everyone above 50 has, like, 180. 
uh, not one hundred eighty dollars, one hundred eighty thousand. So it's like ten times the amount of a millennial. Now that's a whole lot of parents, and even not parents, you don't have to be related. I mean, a parent generation who treated the generation down from them like a resource, like a natural resource, not a we want to network you with you, kid, because you're going to be something someday. More like, you know, we're going to set up everybody as a renter. You told me something, Todd, which is um, you knew successful parents who had, like, planned out how their kid was going to buy their first house and land and things like that. That they were setting aside, you know, um, oh. serious planning yeah. yeah, so that they wouldn't have to struggle for 30 years before they could start a family. Well, I'll, I'll give you, I'll one-up you on that and tell you kind of what, you know, I grew up in rural Maine, and then in, in rural Maine, there's two kinds of people. There's really, really rich generational money, and there's poor, 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 right? You can guess which one I was, but um, they they also do things like um, they'll get a credit, a, a secured credit card for their kid when they're born. As soon as they get their social security number, they'll go and put a credit card for five grand, ten grand, whatever, and, and so they'll start getting credit from when they're a year old, when... The lower social class, they don't get credit until they get that Sears card with a hundred dollar credit limit when they're eighteen. You know, right? <laughs> so yeah, it's it's planned out. I mean, if their their dad went to Dartmouth, regardless of your grades, you're going to get in on a gentleman's agreement. Yeah, the, the the property. You know, in my business now, I do construction work, I do restoration work, and it's it is very 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 common. I'd say once a week, I go to the Oregon Ghost. Um, where there's millionaires and billionaires, believe it or not, even here in Oregon. And the, the, the parents will say things, well, we're going to give this thing to our kids, but I don't know if they really want it. We're talking about a beachfront house here, Joe. Yeah. I don't know if they want the bother. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that weekly, and I it always kind of, I'm not even surprised to hear it anymore, but yeah. It, They're playing with a lot of chips, let's put it that way, that's, Joe. That's beyond buying them their first car, yeah. I, I think the... Yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. The, if they start that start that young, you know, yeah. I the I think the the way to encapsulate this is simply to say that it seems to me that um, if we're if we're gonna rich dad poor dad this, um, poor parents uh, use their children as a resource to help them keep the house afloat as they go on. Uh, wealthy parents are the resource for their kid. You talked about Dartmouth and and you know a house and all these things. Like they connect their children to resources before they even need them. Um, mm-hmm. Now in and, and, collect, and connect them too with with their friends, with their church friends, and with their community friends. Oh, with their political friends. Absolutely, mentors. Yeah, they yeah they provide as many resources mm-hmm. as possible. And they keep an eye on who they spend. They keep an eye on who they spend time with. All this stuff sounds like, oh, yeah, this is parenting 101. Trust me, the higher class does a better job of it because they have more time and resources. They have more people because the stakes are higher. They have more to lose. Yeah. You know, the, and the lower the lower class, they just want you to babysit so they so they can go work the second shift at Denny's. It's it's not the same. That's the perfect way to illustrate it. Yeah, if you come from the lower class. It's not about connecting your kid to resources. It's about making sure they have, you know, the basics for now. Um, did you? Okay, so this is not necessarily going to be. We started this episode by talking about um, labor unions. Um, so let's kind of put our chips on the table because this is also yet again a, a, a everything is politically charged now. So let's talk about you know whether you and I are pro or con uh, union. So first, I'll ask you, Todd. You know, are you for unions or are you con union? 
Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh <laughs> I'm pro union given that it's not just tenure over talent. That it isn't just the tattletaling on your coworkers and you can never get I, I, I don't agree with, with the police unions where there's been an officer who has seventy six complaints, but it's impossible for them to get fired. Right. And when they do an unspeakable act, they get fired from their job and they say he lost his job, but he's but he's got full pay pension for the rest. And they just kind of, well, that's their union thing. And I, I just don't think that's right. And that I don't think that's fair. But then I do believe in protecting and having a minimum base. Yeah. That I think that a certain people need to make. And, and it kind of what you touched on in, in, in the narrative in the beginning is a livable wage, a fair wage for a fair day's work. That's the union thing. And, and I do believe in that. What about you, Joe? I think I'm just going to steal your answers. It's <laughs> it's it's not having the biggest employer on this earth right now having, you know, so many of their employees on snap and food stamps. It's I, I believe in representation for large labor forces, um, if nothing else than to set up the the lowest bar that you can, you know, that that's necessary to live. And then at the same time. I don't believe unions are necessary for um, some small businesses and freelancing and, and representation. Like there, there are some small companies where it's not necessary. There are some types of labor where I don't believe it's necessary. Um, But like, for example, most CEOs in America, they run tiny companies. They, they shouldn't have unions because they're basically their own representation and they may have a couple of people working for them. Um, But I, I think you're dead on the, the, way a union looks terrible from the outside is when you have somebody who is absolutely off of their job they can't get fired they're the teacher who drinks at work and you know they don't bother teaching anymore they've lost all you know uh, uh, gumption or motivation to to sculpt the minds of yeah. the youth but they cannot be evicted out of their job because they're union and tenured where's the balance on that where do you go from the the walmart or let's just say the amazon um, distribution center where pregnant women aren't allowed to use the bathroom because they have to be clocked back in. I mean, where does it go from there to being the person who's, I'm a union guy, the, the I'm not going to say the trucker, but the, the guy who, <laughs> who works at Boeing making airplanes, who's just the biggest jerk to everybody every day, all day long. It has been for 30 years, but we can't give Lyrida stand because he's a union, you know, right. <laughs> as long as you paid your union dues. <laughs> Or the police officer who's done eighty six horrible things, and, right? You know, and forget about getting fired; they're still working. You know, <laughs> yeah. People who they're doing eighty eight. <laughs> yeah, people who say they're anti union. I mean, they they say, well, where do you draw the line? Is it you know you can't get fired? It's like no, no. The the line is peeing into bottles and having to be on food stamps nonstop. Like that's that's the line. Like that's that's where we can draw that line. Um. Well, we did, we did this show about the West Virginia. Do you remember that? The coal mines. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then and then it was, uh, it's funny to me, it was in the 70s. And, and uh, you know, things have changed in this country about how people see things. But there was that flat out American, you're a socialist if you're a union, you know. Right. And then it became the opposite. Like union was more American, you know. Fair wage for a fair day. I, I love it. I love Portland, Oregon. I'll tell you why Portland, Oregon is so friggin' cool. It, because it's so friggin' weird. Um, 
there's a union here that the, the we have a bookstore, a very famous bookstore. Anyone who visits here, please visit this thing. It's Powell's Powell's Bookstore. Um, it's independently owned and, and it's a union ran bookstore. And they have every genre of book. It it's the Disneyland of bookstores. Okay, it's amazing. It's humongous. Every book you ever have. There's droves of people. Well, they're part of the union. They're the same union, Joe, as the Teamsters. They're the same as the Longshore. Not the Teamsters. That's the Trickers. As the Longshoremen. Right. <laughs> so the Longshoremen and the and the librarian <laughs> Powell book workers. <laughs> so so when they were striking. They called their brothers down at the Longshoremen, so they came down with their six packs of Budweisers and started throwing f bombs around. It was beautiful. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> with their lifted trucks, with their testicles on the back, I'm like, "This is great, man. I love it." <laughs> I love to be there for the union meeting, where it's just like you're sitting next to a somebody nerdy with glasses reading The Great Gatsby. Next to him is somebody who's just <laughs> sitting there with a newspaper, <laughs> big burly guy used to hauling boxes. Yeah. She says this totally, like, really, prof- you know, profound, uh, well-educated, well-structured uh, argument. And then he stands up and just says, fuck yeah! <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it, whether our stance is, is pro or con union, I've seen you and heard you talk about your own employees. And so I, I know that you seek to treat them as fairly as possible with as much wage as possible as to, you know, keep them doing their best work. So I guess uh, to to me again, this is another example of um, you know, I look to Todd because I didn't learn this lesson about treating people like a, a resource until I was much older, like literally years ago. Um, but seeing that, seeing that, you know, to keep people to to keep them doing their best work, it's not about locking them into place. Um, we, our Amazon episode that we did, you know, last year, we talked about how Amazon found that the bare minimum you could give somebody was fifteen an hour in medical benefits, and they wouldn't quit. Um, that wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't them being fair and trying to like give somebody a good life. It was just, they did an algorithm that found out this is what it takes to keep somebody moving boxes, despite the horrific risk of injury that they were getting. Like Amazon workers were getting injuries at the you know higher rates than like steel mills. And they found out that, you know, that was the, the lowest amount they could pay them to keep them, you know, ball and chained to their labor job. So yeah, and so so we have people working in more dangerous conditions than someone who makes four times as much and has two cars in the driveway, a kid in college. You know, that's the point, right? It's not fair. It's just not fair at all. It's not even close. Right, and to me, the opposite is I, I heard you once talking about um, you had just hired somebody and you had negotiated a rate that was higher than what they were making at their job and they were skilled labor. And I just remember thinking, like, it was odd to me you weren't undercutting anybody. You weren't trying to get the best rate like so many companies, like, negotiate the moment you walk in and you are negotiating for your salary and your job. And there's no transparency. The, the guy sitting, you know, behind the hiring desk, they don't want to tell you how much they offered the last guy. They want you to say your price first so that they can lowball you. Like, whatever you think your value is, they'll try to go under it. I didn't see you doing any of that, and it, it was my first real lesson in seeing this is valuing somebody as a resource because they're going to enrich your company. They're going to do their best work, hopefully. Well, I'll tell you about how this, this went down. This is somebody that I, I worked previously with this person, so I do have some history with them, and I know their strengths and their weaknesses. They, you know, everyone's, and that's a big thing is evaluating. But when he called me and I, and I told him that I, I had a position for him and that I, 
what he, he was going to pay him more than he's making now so we can start the conversation. I think that's important, right? Right. Do something better than you're doing. He told me that he had a he had um, a loan with the company that they had helped him with, you know, so, some things. And I was very proud of the fact that I could say, well, I'll just pay for that off for you. We'll consider it a signing bonus. <laughs> And I felt very gangster. I felt like a big shot, and it felt very good. But my my motivations are selfish because I know how valuable he, he is to overall revenue, and what a prof- and and I know his skill set as being a good problem solver and hardworking and dedicated. And I also know how he hasn't changed jobs very much, much like our hero here, Uncle Joe. So I did all that math and said. It's important to offer more to people who are are more, you know, who people who it's not just experience to me, it's overall attitude and character. Yeah. You know, I think I think in today they look too much about what you did. There's too much resume reading. And everyone gets back, "Well, I used to do this, and I used to do this." And and who cares? What can you do right now? And and as you and I have studied this in 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 our our business in the podcasting world is um so what? <laughs> you had your peak, but you're not. <laughs> Maybe that was your good old days, and your good old days are past. You know, right? <clears throat> we had that. Um, I mean, we, we've we've had uh, an episode about Elon Musk's hiring practices and saying that he looks for exceptional talent, not for resumes and and not for degrees. And the, the reality <laughs> is that you know, um, whatever you did most recently is probably a better indicator of what you're capable of. But not only that. Strangers are, strangers are usually better at telling what you'll be able to complete as a task than you are yourself. So you can put whatever you want on a resume. The person who's sitting across from you, the stranger who is talking to you, they're probably going to be able to figure out very quickly, instinctively, what you are capable of completing as a task. And Todd, you knowing that about your employee before you hire him on, like I, I have no doubt that you know that that works. That seeing somebody as a resource like that is paying itself off in in business. Well, and you could go to the job boards, and I'll challenge you to do that. You know, while we do this episode, Joe, go to the job boards, and you'll see what their what the starting pay is for jobs. And they'll want five years' experience, but they're paying for a very entry level pay, right? With this, okay, hey, come work for us. And you can't help but saying, as a human being, why? So you're going to pay me like as like like I just got out of college when I've been doing this five years, and then you expect me to hit the ground running. <laughs> which means make them money before they have to invest another cent in you. Right. It just seems like a very selfish relationship. <laughs> and it just doesn't make any sense to me. Why would I quit my five-year job to, to start over with your company? Because you are, you know, I got I got some dirt on friggin' Walmart. You want to hear it? <laughs> yeah, I do. This episode is about basically uh, shoveling well, shit toward Walmart, so I'm in. Well, I... Coaching, training, doing presentations. We did presentations for. We worked for someone who who, who, was, who was doing a big board thing when a higher up higher up position in Walmart. Moving to Arkansas, I forgot the name of the town. Um, do you know the name of the town? It's a small town in Arkansas. It's where it's where the the corporate headquarters is. So this person went through all this stuff, and during the board, and I got to listen in on all of it. You know, doing doing our thing, and um, they were bragging that we're the Forbes number one company now. That's what the the Walmart executives were bragging about. We make more money than everybody else. We're the most. <laughs> and I just was thinking, huh, because the job doesn't pay more than everybody else. Right. 
but you expect this candidate to be like, you're number one. You won the World Series. You won the Super Bowl. Always be lucky to work for you. And I'm thinking, is that just because you're you guys are making all the money and you're not paying the goons, uh, you know, the the moms and dads right. <laughs> at the stores. You can be on that Forbes number one company if, list if the difference between your pay and your employees' pay is this vast. I was insulted that they didn't see that. They didn't connect those dots. Yeah. And they were strutting around uh, peacocking about it. So, Did you ever – okay, so um... – did you ever hear about uh, how Alan Turing got his uh, Enigma, machine, uh, Enigma machine to be greenlit? No. So if, if you've ever, you know, there's like a, a movie about Alan Turing and there's like documentaries about him. And a lot of them don't actually get into his letter. But um, basically, you know, Alan Turing, it's, it's World War II in Britain. And he's tasked with building the impossible machine, this big computer that, that, you know, churns through code, and it's basically tell yeah. Tell me, tell me. I'm embarrassed to say, Joe. I don't know who Alan Turing. Yeah, is. he's he's the inventor of the first computer. Like uh, to to put it in a short, you know, shorthand. Um, why do you think? Why do you, you're such a, you're such a jerk? Why do you think everybody knows that, Joe? Jeez, Louise. <laughs> I assume not everyone is as well read as you are, and educated as you. I you're such you're so inconsiderate. It's it's more. I expect everyone <laughs> to see as many movies as I do, and when they don't keep up, I I am the movie snob about it. Let me flip my scarf backwards and tell you about this. Um, no, but it, uh, Turing in in reality in the movie and in most documentaries. They just talk about how he, like, very stubbornly went around his officer and, you know, sent a letter to Winston Churchill. And it's kind of taken as, like, that was him being, you know, um, uh, stubborn or him being sort of, like, um, you know, taking charge. But really, it was just he saw the value of what they had. He appealed to Winston Churchill. And instead of bragging about what he's building, which is, again, the first ever computer, like, nothing else exists like this. And he, he kind of suckers the government into building it. The British government invests tons and tons of money because it can break the um, the German code flying through the air. It's being done in the open in front of everybody on the radio. It's just that it's encoded with such a clever machine that no one can break the code. Alan Turing invents a computer that... for the first time ever to, to break it. Isn't that interesting, though? So he wants to get more mileage. He wants to get more computer and more technology. But he knows he needs this very very influential man Winston Churchill to help him right right he's like I'm the smartest person in the world I have the smartest computer in the world that can solve all your problems but I still need you to see me as the resource I am and my team like more specifically he needs he needs the help of his people to build this thing and the you know the officer directly above him isn't giving it to him uh, I'm, I'm gonna link you what a successful attitude though right yeah oh absolutely what a successful and then and then his team too who wouldn't want to who wouldn't want to be part of a leader like that where you feel valued and bulletproof and you're doing something significant for history right and he's appealing to the right person winston churchill the reason why he was even in the war and the reason why he was prime minister the reason why he, he got to where he was is because after the first world war when churchill was absolutely disgraced because he lost a battle at the dardanelles he was basically pushed out of politics, but Churchill saw people as resources, and he kept his spies, and he kept in contact with everyone from the government. He kept up, you know, commitments, and and he he 
made himself such an absolute resource they couldn't get rid of him. Like, he was so valuable when the Second World War started up. Basically, that's how he got back into politics, is, is to, to make an extremely robust biography as slim and short as possible. He got back in by just being amazing at seeing people like a resource in a good way. And that's what Turing appealed to when he sent this letter. Would you mind reading it for us? I'm reading it right here. Okay, so this is Alan Turing's letter to Winston Churchill. Dear Prime Minister, some weeks ago you paid us the honor of a visit, and we believe that you regard our work as important. You have seen that. We have been well supplied with the bombs of breaking the German Enigma codes. We think, however, that you ought to know that this work is being held up, and in some cases not being done at all, principally because we can cannot get sufficient staff to deal with it. I think that's significant because well, Dan, he's got the smartest machine on earth, and he says we don't have the people. And what and what does this not have on it? It doesn't have a hint of um, ego in it at all. Right. He's saying I need help. We have done some great things. You have seen what it's what what it can do. You've seen the spark. You've seen the hope, the future. But I need help to get it where where it can really be full potential. And this is a great lesson for me. I'm telling you. Not to belabor the point, but I saw a speech from uh, Bill Gates. You know, he was uh, doing a dedication thing for Steve Ballmer, who uh, was stepping down from Microsoft. You know, and Bill Gates started crying. We talked about Steve Ballmer. Um, this is someone he knew from Harvard, and they'd been through the whole thing. They're all billionaires. You know, he's one of his. He was his third in charge or second in charge after um, him and his his original partner. He's crying. And Bill Gates, I don't see as a crier, sensitive guy, but he said all the things that Steve Barber had done. So don't you think Bill Gates, you know, <laughs> for him to be talking about someone like that, to being brought to tears, I think shows that he, he he gets this he gets this whole philosophy that you're that you're laying down. Right. It's it's somebody he connected with and held up as a resource and used them mutually in a good way, and. He sees that going away. I wouldn't be a trillionaire without you. I might be a billionaire, but... <laughs> you you helped me build my uh, money castle. Um, okay, have you ever have you ever seen old uh, anti-union videos from any company? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, this sounds, this sounds like those old sexual harassment movies. It's better than those? It's so much better because it is... It, if you talk to somebody in politics today, like somebody who's anti-union, they at least sound smart. Like I've, I've, you know, had arguments. I used to be in a political debate club, and the arguments against unions is exactly what you said. It's, it's you get people who are tenured that you can't get rid of. You have people that are getting privileged they don't deserve. You have, you know, a, a system where it, it, it hamstrings an employer. None of those are brought up during an anti-union video. Like um, I've got one for Walmart. And it was made in the 90s, and it's incredible. No matter how big the company gets, this place is special to us. It's special because of the people. You know, you're just beginning your career with us, and it's hard to grasp everything that's available to you, like great benefits and a really friendly and fun place to work. To be honest, I don't like handing my signature over to anyone, much less to unions who seem to be spending so much time trying to hurt my company. You could also be affecting the people who have worked here for years and enjoy Walmart for the same reasons we do. People like me. 
And me. And me. We won't have time to play the whole thing this week, but we'll start the next episode with it next week. This whole video is just schlock and nonsense and recruitaganda about why you shouldn't have representation while working under Walmart. A 2.3 million people company that has an incredible reputation for abusing employees. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredyou.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything.